Uh, This is week three in our series of talking about Jesus, different biblical models for how to share the wonderful news we have about forgiveness and new life. Uh, Today we're looking at how Jesus himself speaks about the gift of life. But we're doing much more than studying a technique or a strategy because Jesus is far greater than just a teacher or a coach or an example to follow. We want to learn more about the glories of Jesus himself, more of the richness and satisfaction of the life he offers, the living water of his spirit who satisfies us like nothing else because that's what will really motivate us to share him. It's not knowing more techniques, it's not knowing more ways of doing evangelism, it's knowing more Jesus. Because it's Jesus we're bringing people to. We're not selling a lifestyle. We're not selling a morality code or a club to join. We're offering them Jesus as their Saviour and Lord, as their shepherd, their friend, their joy, their food and drink, their comfort, their life. Today we're looking at how Jesus moves the conversation from ordinary things to things that matter most. Uh, from physical things to spiritual things. And that's something that we can uh, do as well. We can make the most of opportunities to talk to our friends and our workmates, uh, to turn conversations uh, from what they did on the weekend or TV ads or what's on the news or movies uh, to spiritual things, to things that matter. And Jesus gives us an example of how to do that. But first though, I want to look at four excuses that Jesus didn't use. Four good excuses. I don't know if you're anything like me, but I'm quick to come up with excuses in my own mind for why I'm not going to talk to someone about Jesus. It's not the right time. They wouldn't be interested. They'll just think I'm weird. I'm not sure what to say. It might make the friendship awkward. There's all sorts of excuses, uh, but that's all they are, aren't they? They're just excuses. Listen to four excuses Jesus could have used but didn't. Firstly, he was tired, hot, hungry and thirsty. Verse 6 and 7, he had every excuse to, to have a little me time, to rest, to hang out with himself and just say, no, no, I've got boundaries, you know, uh, I, I need to, got to be, got to love myself before I can love others, something like that. Uh, But for Jesus, it was all about the woman. It was her timetable, not his. She was open and ready to talk then, not when it was convenient for him. So he grabbed the teachable moment and he used it. He didn't use the excuse that he was tired, hot and thirsty. Second excuse Jesus could have used but didn't, it wasn't socially acceptable for men and women to talk. Convention was that men would talk to men Women would talk to women uh, and they certainly wouldn't be men and women talking uh, unaccompanied. Uh, Jesus was risking both causing offence and being accused of improper behaviour by doing what he did and yet he still initiated that conversation. What's the equivalent for us today? What are the uh, social conventions that we could risk breaking? You ever got on the train and people just start conversations with someone sitting next to them? Doesn't happen often, does it? Sit down on the train, pull the phone out, 
get in your little cocoon, don't talk to anybody. Or what about in a lift? Get in a lift, the door's closed, everyone looks at the button, you know, the numbers. No one talks. Uh, Or maybe the supermarket queue. That seems to be another social convention that we don't sort of talk to anyone. Uh, But let's break those conversations. I don't know if you've ever tried it, but quite often people are more than willing to talk uh, as you make the first move in a friendly, non-threatening way. Well, the third excuse Jesus didn't use was that he was a Jew and she was a Samaritan. There was a long history of animosity between them. The Jews looked down on the Samaritans as inferior, a mixed race, uh, and so they, the Samaritans were second class. Jesus could have used that as an excuse. The woman's quite surprised that he was actually speaking to her. You can see that in verse 9. And we get the little explanation, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. I wonder whether you're willing to break the cultural norms of opening conversations with people. How often do we assume that language will be a barrier and therefore we won't say anything? We only need to walk down the street of Ashfield and we're probably going to find two-thirds of the people who won't have English as their first language. Or maybe people who dress differently. Uh, Muslim women with headscarves seems to be a barrier that we think, oh, I'm not sure it's appropriate or whether I'm going to be able to speak to this person. Well, Jesus didn't use cultural differences as an excuse and we shouldn't either. Fourth excuse Jesus could have used, the woman's reputation. Uh, Jesus' reputation was at risk as well, but he didn't let that stop him. Verse 18, she'd had five husbands The one she was living with now wasn't her husband. Now we don't know what the history was of those previous husbands, whether they divorced her, whether she'd committed adultery, whether uh, she'd stolen some other husband, whether she was a widow, we don't really know. Um, But we can guess perhaps that the reason she was collecting water in the middle of the day at this out of town well was that uh, the other women didn't want much to do with her. Everyone else would collect their water in the morning, but not this this woman. Uh, To avoid uh, perhaps their rejection, she was only left with the hottest part of the day. So here was Jesus risking his reputation to be even seen with her, but he didn't use it as an excuse. So why did Jesus speak? Uh, We thought about why he kept quiet, but why did he initiate the conversation? Well, there's a phrase there in verse 10 that I want to concentrate on. The woman's asked, why are you talking to me? And here's Jesus' reply, if you knew the gift of God, if only you knew, if you just had the knowledge, you don't, but if you did. Karen and I enjoy a glass of wine, but we're not really wine appreciators, not in any informed way. We make a decision about what we're going to buy based pretty much on price and the look of the label. You know, it's a nice looking label. It's in our price range. Let's buy that one. If only we knew what we were looking for, what we were tasting, uh, how to describe it, how it's made, we'd probably get a lot more enjoyment out of it. It's the sort of thing you find out when you visit a winery and you go to a cellar door, perhaps. Uh, We did that on our holiday a couple of months ago and we we uh, met the actual the winemaker himself was there he, from Sydney and he'd moved out 20 odd years ago and 
We had a great time as he told us all about the region and the grapes and how he made the wines and the different styles and what we should try and uh, taste and how to match it with foods. Uh, And as he did that, he talked about how difficult it was to to get a foothold into the local restaurants, which we thought would want to champion local produce. But he said it's really difficult because all they want is the cheap bottles. Give us whatever's cheap, they say. And he said something like, if only they knew, if only they knew how much more there was to wine than just the price. And Jesus is saying the same thing to this woman. If only you knew. You look like you're not enjoying life. You're looking for love in all the wrong places. If only you knew what I know. You would get so much more enjoyment from the journey. Let me tell you. So why does Jesus talk? Because he knows something she doesn't. He knows life. He is life. Rich, full and complete. Life that lasts. Life that she is searching for without even knowing it, but not finding. Life that satisfies her thirst. That's what he's got. That's what he is. And it's the same reason we should speak as well. Not out of guilt, not out of trying to work for our salvation, not because we want to win an argument. We should do it because we know something that others don't or that others need to know. The author D.T. Niles uh, once said that evangelism was nothing more than one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. It's fairly simple really. There's no pride. There's no one-upmanship. There's no ulterior motive in that. It's simply one person has life-giving information that someone else needs. So what is it that Jesus knew that this woman needed to know? Well, look at the end of the rest of the sentence, verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She needed to know the gift of God and she needed to know Jesus himself, which is really the first thing she needs because she needs to know who Jesus is and then what he offers. She needs to know Jesus because he's the one who can give her the gift of God. So let's ask the question, what's the gift of God? Well, the answer, Jesus says, is living water. Now that doesn't make things a whole lot clearer, does it? So what's living water? Well, they're at a well. Jesus is thirsty. She's come here to collect water. The idea of water is prominent in their minds. That's Jesus' way of teaching, to use physical things and then to point them or turn them around Uh, to spiritual things. Uh, A bit further on in the chapter Nora read for us, down in verse 34, uh, he does the same thing. The disciples bring back some food, ask him whether he wants some lunch, and he says his food is to do his father's will. That's what satisfies him. He does it again in verse 35. He's looking out on the fields of grain and then he talks about fields of people who are ripe for harvest uses physical things as an illustration of spiritual things. And here he is sitting around a well and he talks about water. He talks about living water, uh, which has a double meaning, that word for living. It's a bit like what we say, what we mean when we say running water. 
Uh, The word running in English can mean two things. It can mean this, but it can also mean flowing. Uh, And it's the same with living water. Living can mean flowing water at its simplest, but it can also mean life-giving water. And when Jesus says living, he means life-giving. The woman thinks he means flowing water, non-stagnant water, non-well water. Uh, Verse 11, she says, uh, you've got nothing to draw uh, with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water from that you're offering? The only water she knows is at the bottom of the hole. Jesus makes it a little clearer. He's got her interest. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Eternal life is not just life that never ends, but life of the ages. Life you were designed for. I wonder whether ultimate life is not a better translation for what John's Gospel is on about. Life of the Kingdom of God. The woman's interested. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Is she beginning to understand or is she only thinking physical water? Well, at this point Jesus says something that may sound like he's completely off track or starting a new conversation. Verse 16, he sort of bluntly says, go call your husband and come back. She reveals she's had five husbands. Number six she's not even married to. Jesus knows that all along. So, So what's he doing? Is he simply changing the subject? Is he trying a different approach? I don't think so. His question is all about how she's searching for what will satisfy her. He's saying, you want to know where to find the water that gives life? You want to know where to find something that will satisfy your thirst? How's that going so far? How well have you satisfied your thirst for life in this direction? You've been looking for it in relationships. How's that going for you? And she said, well, I'm on to number six. I'm hoping this one might be the the kicker. This one might work. Uh, We might add, in a gentle way, to the people we talk to as they tell us about their aspirations and their goals, how's that going? Now that you've got that club membership, is it all you thought it would be? Now you've finished that extension, is it all you thought it would be? Now that you've got the kids, now that you've got the family, now that you've retired, now that you've got the car, is it all you thought it would be? Is it satisfying you? Jesus says all those things are a dry well. There's no life there, it won't satisfy you. Let me show you the water that will. So what's the water? Well, when you read about water in John's Gospel, nearly always it stands for the, God, uh, the gift of God's Holy Spirit. God's Spirit who gives spiritual life the way water is necessary for physical life. God's Spirit who washes you clean when he forgives your sin. Back in chapter 3, Nicodemus, 
Uh, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says in verse 5, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Uh, Now, that's really Jesus just quoting a promise that God makes back in Ezekiel 36. God promises in Ezekiel that one day he's going to sprinkle clean water on his people and wash them clean of their sins and put his spirit in them to make them new. He's describing the same thing in three different ways. He's going to wash them clean, forgive their sins, put his spirit in them. And so John is grabbing that symbolism of water standing for the spirit and using it here in John's Gospel. Over in chapter 7, Jesus makes this invitation to the people who are listening to him. John 7:37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. And then John explains it. By this he meant the spirit whom those who believed would later receive. That's the gift Jesus wants this woman to know about. The Spirit of God who will fill her up and satisfy her thirst for life. God himself will join to her spiritually and satisfy her desires for life and refresh her and it will well up in her to eternal life. It will bubble out of her and nothing else can measure up That's what Jesus is saying. That's the gift he's offering her. That's why he speaks. But there's a third thing Jesus wants this woman to know about and it flows out of the gift. It's the experience that comes from that. The experience that comes from the reality of God's spirit living in you. There's a brand new experience of worship, of knowing God, of relating to him. If God is in you, if you've drunk the living water of his spirit, then you don't have to go to a certain place. The Jews would travel to the temple in Jerusalem. The Samaritans would travel to their own special place, Mount Gerizim. But Jesus says, when God pours his spirit into you, place doesn't matter anymore. Verse 21, he says, a time is coming when you'll worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem, there's not going to be a place anymore. Verse 23, he says, A time is coming and has now come when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. Place doesn't matter when God is with you all the time, everywhere. You can worship him anywhere because he's with you everywhere. And Jesus is saying that's the sort of worship that's true that will transform your whole life when you know that God is with you at any time, in any place, in any circumstance. And what it does is it enlarges your vision for what life is about, what Christianity is about. Because Christianity is not just a set of beliefs. It's not an attendance at a service. It's not a religious part of life and God is not relevant to the rest of life. If God is in you, then God is every part of life, isn't he? 
You worship God in every part of life because he's with you all the time. There is no part that's outside of God's influence and your religious response is every part of life. I don't know about you, but I reckon that's one of the best things about being a Christian. Uh, The fact that God is with you everywhere, in every instance, every example, every circumstance. Is that something that you know? If it's not, I'd love to talk to you, help you to experience that, to know it. That's what Jesus wants this woman to know. It seems like that's what happens for her. The disciples arrive back from town, they've got lunch. That seems to rattle her a bit. She heads back to town. When she gets there, she announces to everyone, uh, verse 29, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could this one be the Messiah? And they follow her back to the well to see Jesus. Here she is, one of the first evangelists. Hardly the sort of uh, one that we might pick. She doesn't have all the answers. She knows very little, but she's pretty effective nonetheless. Verse 39, at the end of the chapter, many Samaritans believe. And then in verse 42, the story concludes. The townsfolk say, we don't just believe because you've told us. Now we've heard for ourselves and we know this man really is the saviour of the world. He's not just the Jewish Messiah, he's the saviour of the world. That that includes us. How good is that? Jesus begins with a question of the woman, if only you knew, and by the end of the chapter, not just the woman knows, but the whole town knows. They know that he's the saviour of the world. And her approach is a good one for us to copy, isn't it? Come and see. I haven't got all the answers. Don't follow me. I can take you to show, I can show you the one who does have the answers though. Come and see. It's like with Andrew last week when we looked at him, how he followed Jesus and then brought Peter to follow Jesus as well. Come and see, said Jesus. Come and see, says the woman. One more lesson to learn and that is that we're to view the world the way that Jesus does. A few verses uh, back from uh, that point. The disciples are back with lunch. Uh, The woman has evangelised the town and verse 30, they're headed back towards the well. The disciples ask Jesus, you should eat something, but he says there's more important things than food. Verse 34, he says, his food is to do his father's will. His father's will is to reap the harvest. And verse 35, do you not say four more months and then the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. What's he pointing to as he says, look to the fields? Is he actually looking at the fields or is he looking at the crowd who are walking along the road towards him? They're the fields that are ripe for harvest. He sees it, but the disciples have been into town. They've seen that same crowd and what have they come back with? Lunch. No people. Unlike the woman, she sees, she sees the crowd. The disciples see dirty Samaritans to be avoided. Jesus sees a field ripe for harvest. The disciples see food to be bought. Jesus sees a field ripe for harvest. 
And that's our world too, isn't it? We see people too busy, too satisfied, too good, too bad, too knowledgeable for Jesus. But he sees a field ripe for harvest. He sees friends, neighbours who are thirsty, longing for what really satisfies. We see excuses not to speak. Jesus sees a field ripe for harvest. We see pride and stubbornness. Jesus sees a field ripe for harvest. Let's be part of that harvest. Let's make the most of the opportunities in our everyday conversations to introduce people to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, above all, the first thing out of this chapter is we want to see Jesus more. We want to experience more of the living water that he offers. Your spirit poured into us, filling us up, satisfying our hunger for life, our hunger for relationship and forgiveness and joy and peace and purpose. Lord, for any here this morning who don't know that, we pray that you might enable them to trust you and that you would give them the gift of your spirit poured into them. Secondly, Lord, we want to pray that you would help us in the conversations we have uh, to share what we know and what we experience of Jesus with those we love so that he might be honoured and glorified. Amen.